Hey, welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel, here in studio with Elias Randall. How you doing today, Elias? Oh, I'm I'm good. I'm really good, actually. How are you? Good. I feel like we need like the Doug Wagner introduction to our show sometime where he runs through our experience and our licenses and all the fun stuff we've accomplished and it's about eight minutes of the show yeah i don't i guess that'd be nice i have a series seven and a 66 that's what i got for you (laughs) well i feel like i'm not giving you a fair introduction and you've been part of the show for the better part of a year and a half and you've done a great job so well my my fans love me and that's all i need so I got my fan love, and I'm good with that. Well, we were talking about it the other day, and what, what did you tell me? I don't need everybody to like me, just a few people. Well, so, and that's true, but one time someone explained it to me this way. 25% of people are going to like you just because they do. 25% of people can be influenced to like you. 25% of people are never going to like you, and then the other 25%, they're just indifferent, so they're not going to like you or dislike you. So I figure I don't need everyone to be a fan of me. Just, you know, I'll attract the people that like me, and I'm good with that. I I think that's a good philosophy. It's probably a general rule for more than just people liking you, too. If you think about life in general, it's probably a rule that applies to most things. I'm sure there's – I'm sure I have fans, and I'm sure I have haters just like everyone else. Well, one of the things we're going to talk about today, and due to a lot of factors that's happening in the current – market and economic environment, geopolitical events, we're going to talk about five decisions that can really make or break your retirement and what those can be. But that said, I know you've been putting in a lot of research and you've been putting in time into what's going on from a geopolitical standpoint, from an inflation standpoint, an interest rate standpoint. Tell me about one of those charts. You were talking about an inflation chart or something that Jeffrey Gunlock put out this morning. And if you don't know who Jeffrey Gunlock is, he is the... Uh, the founder of Double Line Funds. They're one of the largest bond funds of America. And, you know, he's arguably a pretty smart individual. Well, yeah. So it was in terms of um, his, I guess his inflation target is a little bit higher than a lot of what we've been seeing. We've been seeing like a lot of seven, seven and a half percent inflation. That's where we're at now. Um, Actually, they just came out 7.9 percent, 40 year high. February inflation was 7.9%. That's a 40-year high in inflation. Yeah. And and I'm not trying to interrupt you. That's okay. That doesn't include energy. That's before the recent rise in the price of, you know, oil and gasoline that we're all seeing at the pumps. Right. So in this article, he's saying inflation could certainly be 9 even 10%. Um, And he highlights a lot of the things you just mentioned, energy cost, housing cost. Um, you know, cause inflation, at least measured by the, uh, the consumer price index CPI, people refer to it as, you know, that doesn't include energy and food. And, and if you think about the things that are really going up in price right now, the, his article makes a lot of sense and energy is going up, housing prices, rent prices, food. So I, I think the things he's talking about, um, they're, they're very relevant. I think for us as a firm, I feel like inflation is a big concern that we're trying to manage as far as the assets, um, excuse me, the portfolios that we run for clients. And kind of his basic point was, I don't see how the Federal, Federal Reserve can't do something to start curbing inflation. 
well, as inflation rises, there's one way to fight it, and that's we need to unwind all the tapering, which we're working on. But the second thing is rising interest rates or raising interest rates. And I, I'd i have to go back, but I will believe um, gun launch has been on the the train that the Fed's been late to the party for a long time. I mean, they, he thought they should have raised rates a long time ago. And at the end of the day, the Fed's trying to, to cause the least economic impact to society at the same time fighting off inflation. And some of this still will be interesting to see if it's transitory, because I still believe there's a fair amount of transitory inflation. And some of it goes back to the story I told you about the crab legs. King crab's not going to remain at $60 a pound once they open the crab fishery because they can go do a crab count. It's going to go and down in price. Yeah, the supply will. Yeah. And the supply still has not caught up to the supply chain issue that we have. Although what's happening in Russia and Ukraine is causing a different supply chain issue as we start to sanction these companies, we shut them off, you know, from some economic policies. And the, the biggest thing is the Russian oil and the strain that it's potentially putting on, you know, the oil output, where we can get it, how much cost per barrel there is. I was actually watching uh, an interview, I think it was two days ago, talking about, you know, we do have the ability to put more oil online especially at the prices they're at, it starts to make economic sense for certain drilling operations that shut down when oil was at 40 and $50 a barrel to come back on. The issue is to get back online and produce, it's like a six to 12 month lag time. So it's not like we can just instantly increase the supply that's out there. So we're working with Iran right now and the US is working with a lot of different countries or a lot of different countries to kind of curb this problem. But there's predictions that oil is going to $150 a barrel, which the last time we saw that, I want to say, was pre-2009. I'm pretty sure we were there like 08-ish before um, the, the great financial crisis or great, the great recession that we saw. Um, and people are already feeling it at the pump. You know, I, I watch social media and, you know, people are posting pictures of their fuel bill. And then I saw someone posted one, I want to say it was 2020. June 2020, it was like a buck 82 a gallon. Yeah. Now it's like creeping up on four bucks. I know last summer on the water when I was out boating, it was like $3 and 40 cents. I'm guessing it's going to be five bucks. I mean, they're guessing it could be $6. I don't know what it holds, but that's an inflation that really creeps in and hits everybody. The, the pro and it's not a problem, but if you think about, the cost of gas, every single person fuels their car for the most part, right? It doesn't matter how much money you make. The cost per gallon is the same. So as that cost goes up, it's almost like it's a higher tax on lower income individuals. It's not a tax, but it's taking a bigger chunk out of their monthly budget, which in turn is going to cause them to buy less discretionary goods because they have to fill their tank up to get to get to work. And, and the reality for most people is you have to have gas in your tank, one, just to get to work, right? Or I don't know many people that want to just put their life on pause because gas prices are going up. And I would imagine they'll continue going up, at least in the short term. So, you know, I think about myself, am I going to stop? going the places I want to go and doing the things I want to do because the price of gas, not at this time, but it cuts into other parts of my life because, you know, if it's costing me 
however much more to fill up my tank, well, then there's less money to do other things. So people who know me or follow me in, in a general sense probably know that I, I'm passionate about fishing and boating. Like I spend a lot of time on the water. And the other day my wife asked me, and I'm the last, I don't check the price of gas. Like I don't look, I just fill up because I need it. I do it doesn't really matter what the too. price is. Yeah. I'm going to consume it. And I'm going to Lake of the Ozarks in late April to do, to fish what's called the big bass bash. And it's where it's a, you fish for two days. The largest fish over two days wins a hundred thousand dollars. So it's, it's really for fun, but you never know. You could get lucky. I'm guessing the price of gas will not affect this decision. It won't, but guess what my wife asked me? Well, how far away are you going to go fishing? I go, why does it matter? Well, she goes, well, if gas is $6 and you're making a 20-mile boat ride, that's a lot of gas. I'm like, I'm going to fish where I want to fish. That's me. But I am on a lot of fishing forums and groups that have been talking about this. And while I don't look at the price, and it's not going to affect how I decide to play, let's call it. There's a lot of people who are already saying, hey, instead of driving from Cedar Rapids over to the Mississippi River and drive an hour to go fishing, I'm going to stay within 15 minutes. Yeah. And instead of, you know, running wide open throttle and burning gas, I'm going to drive 30 miles an hour and save fuel. So it is going to affect a lot of people. A lot of people, you know, you think about if you're driving an hour pulling a boat, well, you know, you're getting like 10 miles to the gallon. So if you go you know, 60, any, any amount of distance, yeah. you go 60 mile, you're going through, you know, a dozen gallons of fuel. It's $40 just to get there and back. That's before you did anything. You haven't been on the water. So some people are going to start to look at that where, you know, when it was $10 to do that back and forth at a buck 82, they didn't care. So it's going to have an effect. And this is how I just start to think about how economies change and changes that happen because of this. So if all of a sudden, it used to cost you $40 to fill your fuel tank. And now it's 120 and you fill once a week. That's $320 less per month that you can spend on a discretionary item. And oh, by the way, we haven't now talked about the cost of food increasing and the cost of energy and all of these other items that have increased in cost. At the same time, all the, I'm not going to call it free money, but all the stimulus money is being sucked out. No more stimulus dollars. Oh yeah. The child I tax buy. credit, child tax credit wasn't renewed or hasn't been renewed yet. So those $333 checks per child everybody was getting, those are gone. At some point, that will cause the economy to slow. It just can't stay on fire forever if everybody has less money to spend on discretionary items. So that's kind of the things that I think about the the impact that this oil and different things will have going forward. And I mean, it really leads into, you know, our bigger discussion that we wanted to talk about today, which was, you know, decisions that make or break your retirement. And I don't think this is even one of the um, decisions we have made, but I talk about this with everybody that's thinking they're going to retire in the next 15 years. And that's, you have to know how much you need to spend and you have to factor in inflation. I'll be honest, inflation and I've done workshops and taught classes at the local community college for the better part of 12 years. And I talked about a lot how inflation could be the biggest issue that most retirees have. And let's think about why. Most people that retired in the last 10 years, not most, but a lot, 
if you look at statistics, their biggest check is social security typically. And people that have just retired or recently retired, a lot of them still have pensions. Here's the problem with pensions and social security. They typically don't keep up the cost of living. So inflation becomes the biggest concern for people going forward. And now finally, I shouldn't say finally, but now we're starting to see inflation we haven't seen in 40 years. It is absolutely going to affect consumers in retirement. And you meet with people and so do I, they have their little spreadsheet. Oh, well, I'll have X amount of dollars. I'm gonna make X amount of dollars and spend X amount of dollars. And the one thing they don't include in their spreadsheet, well, there's a couple things, but one of the primary things they don't have in there is what? Inflation. inflation. Yeah, factoring They don't in factor inflation. in inflation. Because there that, hasn't been inflation hardly for, I don't know, 20 years. But now right. we're seeing massive inflation. And it's a risk that I think is kind of a, I think it's an underrated risk because a lot of people, and especially as people transition into retirement, you know, a lot of people kind of, when they go from accumulating to a distribution strategy and they're retired, it seems like the natural tendency is to get um, like very conservative. And I hear people say all the time, well, I, I have enough, so I'm not worried about growing my money. I just want to conserve the principal and live off of it. But especially people outside of our business, so just regular consumers that become clients, they don't, I don't think they view inflation as a risk the same way we do, because you don't ever, you don't ever get a statement that says, well, inflation ate into your savings account 7% this year. You never see it on paper, but just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not a real risk that you need to be managing. And I believe younger people, so let's say pre 40, they've never really seen much inflation. So I no. think you're right. They're underestimating this risk. And this is what I want. If you're under age 40, I want you to go ask your parents or your primarily your grandparents, if they're still around, how much did you pay for your first house? And most of them are going to tell you 40, 50, 70,000, maybe their first house. And then I want the person under 40 go shopping for a new car. <laughs> and that car doesn't have a toilet in it. You can't go to the bathroom. You can't cook food. Like it's a car. You can sleep in it. It's not that comfortable. <laughs> I've done it. <laughs> I've taken plenty of naps in the parking lot when I'm worn out at the end of the day. Right. But my point is, you think about it. 40 years ago, the price of a house is what somebody now pays for a car. That The value of that house goes up typically over time. That car, what's its real useful life? The real utility of a car. 15 or 20 years, and then it's worth basically nothing. Essentially, yeah. Essentially, it's worth nothing. And I think that's a great way to illustrate what inflation is. But if you're 35 years old, you've never seen inflation until today. The last 15 years, it's been running at 2% or less, and it's never affected your life. And now it, you're seeing it. I met with a, a gentleman in the real estate business this morning. We were talking about home prices. He's like, I've never seen anything like it. He's been doing this for 40 years just the rapid increase of how much these things are worth. He's thinking about selling his house and he did the math and he's like shocked. He's in the commercial side of real estate, not the residential side as much. He's just shocked as to what his house is going to sell for versus what he paid, you know, 15 years ago when he built it. And everybody's seeing that sticker shock. You know, I always think back when I think about homes and valuations and stuff, Elias, 
is your friend who sold his house because he was waiting. This is like a year ago. He sold his place to get buy at a lower price. Has he bought a place yet? He, he did. He he bought a house um, and he found what he was looking for. He finally got a small acreage out in the country. He works remote, so he wants to be in between Cedar Rapids and Des Moines. Um, so he, he did it. He pulled the trigger and he bought a house. I'm glad he did because... Who knows what happens to the prices? With that said, though, that's some of the decisions that go into, and that's how I think about retirement decisions. What's the economic environment? What's it look like in the future? What maybe puts everybody in the best position? And one of the number one decisions I think that people or individuals can make regarding retirement is where they save the money. And I'm not talking about an investment. I'm actually talking about a tax a tax incentive account. So are you putting this into a traditional 401k or a Roth 401k where you're actually having the money located? Um, if you're like me, I don't believe tax rates are going down in the future. Most legislation is geared right now in our environment is geared around increasing tax rates on what the government deems are wealthy people eventually it's all going to trickle down to everybody else as well. It always does. And our country is however many trillions of dollars in debt. And there's really only one way to pay for it. And it's more revenue. There's only so much fat you can cut till there's nothing else to cut. It's kind of like working out Elias. Most people who try to lose weight, they do one of two things. They either exercise or they go on a diet. And most of the time they don't lose any weight because there's only so many calories you can cut and still operate. And there's only so many calories you could consume if you're working out. So losing weight doesn't work really without both factors typically to lose a lot of weight. Well, it's the same thing like a budget. You can only cut so much fat because there's no more to cut. I believe rates are going up. So a huge decision is do you put my money into a Roth or do I go into a tax deferred account? I believe if you're under age 50, you should be socking as much money in a Roth IRA as you possibly can right now. Getting into a tax-free space. I don't know what future tax code is, future tax rates are. So by doing a Roth IRA, you're going to the known tax code. You're going to zero. You know I'm not paying tax again. Why not do it today? And for most people, they talk about, oh, I need this tax deduction. Most people that are eligible for a Roth IRA don't need a tax deduction. If you're, if, if you're not, yeah. If you, we're in Iowa, I'm going to give you an example. Right. We're, we live in Iowa. Husband and wife with two kids making $150,000. Their effective tax rate after deductions and everything's all said and done is about 10%. That's really what they're paying. If they go look at their tax return and look at their gross income and what they paid in tax, it's probably around 10%. So, they tell me they need a tax deduction, but you're you're taking tax deferral to save 10% when you could go to a tax-free rate and know where you're at versus in the future, you may be somewhere higher. I think it's one of the most critical decisions people can make. It's also taxes is one of the things that uh, gets clients and uh, people in general kind of excited the most. Um because everyone, you know, most people have to pay taxes. Most people want to pay less. But to your point, um, and I had this conversation with with someone the other day because it's very important. The tax deferral is so important, and 
valuable to them that it's I've, it was a challenge it was a more challenging conversation based because I I was trying to highlight to them a Roth account should be part of your overall picture and you know th- this person is younger than 35 years old and they're worried about market volatility so I said you know that's you're young you're worried about market volatility but you're not worried about future tax codes that you have no idea what they're going to be. So I was trying to highlight the point. Let's talk about some things that we can control and manage from a risk standpoint instead of it. I'm not saying that their concerns aren't legitimate because it's their concerns, right? So they're legitimate for them. But to me, I'm just thinking, you know, someone your age should not be worried about market volatility. You should be more concerned with well, here's an option where you can get some tax-free growth for the long term. It would fit in your picture nicely. Um, but they're so married to the idea of the tax deferral and getting the tax deduction. I, I think this is where, I don't know how many financial plans we do a year. It's a lot. A 50 lot. to 100 new plans a year. Maybe maybe not quite 100, but at least 50. And I can go back to a handful of plans and this this one stands out in my memory. This is like four years ago. I did this plan and they've done a great job. They're 40 years old. They got a million dollars saved, a little more. And I'm looking and they want to spend a lot. Like they have a hefty spending goal. Like they want to live in retirement. They don't just want to get by. I did this plan and you know me, I'm always behind the scenes trying to figure out like, does this make sense? And almost like double checking all the data. And they're taking out all of this money and my like red flags going off. This can't be, there's no way this is possible. They're not paying any tax. Like where's the tax number in this equation? And I just hadn't thought through it yet. This family, every job they left, they've converted all of their assets to a Roth IRA. And they're under 40. I mean, they're ripping out like a couple hundred thousand dollars a year out of this plan. And the only way they can do that is because they're not paying taxes. Because most plans I can see like, you know, someone's spending 7,000 a month and then go to nine. It has a pretty negative impact on the plan a lot of times because it's typically all traditional IRA and they jump into the 22 or the 25% tax bracket and starts eroding the account. So I played around with some other plans doing it. And all of a sudden all these people with the Roth money turned out so much better because, you know, the 100,000 they had turned into 400,000 was tax-free versus 400,000 in taxable money. And it's not like the light went off. I knew that, but I was able to quantify it for people. And it goes back to, you know, why we believe having a financial plan is so critically important. I could have somebody in here do a Roth conversion. Like I could model the Roth conversion, showing the, show the difference over 35 years. And most people would always pick the Roth conversion every single time because they're much better off over that period of time. So like your friend, if you said, Hey, or the general, whoever you're talking to, I don't know if you said it was a friend, you could sit down and say, Hey, let, let's play a game. Let's just compare side by side, the same scenario and see where you end up because you could just say, Hey, we're going to do 10% less contribution. So instead of putting in a thousand dollars a month, he's doing 900 to offset for the tax he has to pay because he's probably only saving 10% in tax. You could figure it out from his tax return right? and see where they are, how much better off they are in 35 years. And then he would make that decision based upon a statistical analysis versus that of, man, I really want a tax deduction because society tells me 
I just want to pay less in taxes when that may or may not be the best situation. So kind of goes back to why I really believe in the planning model. And if anybody needs help with the plan, you can go to btwellshow.com. You can click get a plan, get in touch with us, and we can help you kind of model some of these scenarios. Elias, the next one I'm going to let you take, but this is probably one of the scenarios we start and model a lot for people in a financial plan. And I want full disclosure here. I talked with Molly in my office, and if you're under 40, you don't even think you're getting this. And it's Social Security. Yeah, yeah it, most most young people, I don't I don't think they're factoring or counting on Social Security. And it's interesting because I don't either. I don't I don't do it. I don't not include it in my plan because I don't think I'm going to get it. It's just a byproduct. Like yeah, I just kind of forget it's there. And I, it makes me wonder, is it because our generation has now realized that social security isn't going to foot our retirement bill? Or is it that social securities was a newer thing to our parents and their parents and our grandparents and our parents saw social security as a retirement tool where we just see it as something we might get in the future. And if we don't, well, it is what it is. We just see it more as just a tax. I don't really even view it as a personal benefit. Yeah, I, th I think those things are right. It's, and I think probably people, younger people not having as um, pensions like people used to have. I think when people used to think about retirement, they thought about their social security check and their pension check where younger people typically don't, there still are pensions out there, but the majority of younger people, their retirement mind is, thinking, well, I got to save my 401k, my IRA accounts and stuff like that. So it's probably just kind of a generational shift in how you're thinking about long-term savings. But as far as how it pertains to retirement and planning, when to start social security benefits, that's a big decision that people have to make. And just right here, like one of the first bullet, bullet points on our outline. If you start benefits at age 62, and that's the earliest you can, the payments are permanently reduced by up to 30%. And just coincidentally, I was had this, I was having a conversation with a current client who's transitioning into retirement. And whether I agree or disagree with this sentiment is irrelevant, but the person who does his taxes said, told him, well, you need to just file at 62 because that's how you get the most money out of social security for the long term, which I don't know what type of analysis that person did, but I would, be in, I would be interested. I would be inter right. I would be interested to see it because to me, that's not accurate based on the social security analysis we do. And the other thing I know about this person is they're a fairly conservative investor. So if you take it at 62, and this person has plenty of retirement savings to supplement their income. Well, if you're a conservative investor and you start at 62 and you don't have to, then you just lock in a 30% loss on an income source conceptually. And it's a guaranteed increase at this point from 62 to 67. Right, it's not, it's not an and, investment. And if they're conservative, you hit it right on the head, they're probably not gonna earn more in their retirement account than they're going to earn in the the delayed benefit. In Elias, it's probably the number one question, you know, we actually get asked is what you're, you had this situation. Do I take it at 62 or do I wait? And there's so many factors that go into it. 
financial plan, you can model what gives you a higher probability of success. Your health goes into it. Your family history goes into it, whether you need it. The people, and this is not disparaging to anybody, but I find there's two sets of people that typically take it at 62. Those who need it to retire or those who never need it and just want to take because they paid into the system. You know, I hear this. People come in here. All my friends said I should take it at 62. And I said, well, they might not have done an analysis and more than likely for them to retire and make have any chance of making it work, they probably needed to take the benefit then. But we'd like to put more statistical analysis by it. The only way the CPA could definitively tell the person they're better off taking that money at 62 is if they knew exactly how long that person was going to live. And they don't. That's right. And no one knows. And no they, one knows the knows answer that. to that. So there's so many things that go into it. But what you can do is you can go have a plan created of some, you can have a social security analysis done that says, hey, my probability is X if I take it at 62. It's X if I take it at 67. And it's X if I take it at 70. And if you're going to retire at 62, but you wait till 70, probably need to have a really good distribution strategy to make sure you get the money you need to live uh, that seven or eight years, the gap between when you turn on your social security, it could depend on, you know, what your benefit is, what your spouse has been. If there's so many moving parts, I think there's like 300 plus ways to claim social security. You remember how many ways there are? I don't know. It's there, like there's mind a boggling yeah. that anybody could navigate this on their own and come up with the exact right decision, how to get the maximum amount. But it's one thing we work with people all the time. Well, and if you just, Okay, to kind of compare it to what we do helping people invest, if we if we were able to tell someone when they're 62 years old, hey, between 62 and 67, I can we're, we'll get a 30% return, and then if you wait from 67 to 70, I can get you an 8% compounded return. How many people would say no to that? Everybody would take it. Right. Everyone would take it. So it just, you just got to put a little, I guess my point is a little more into it than, you know, well, someone told me this or that's the way my friend did it. Because if I off, if I offered someone investment that had that performance, it would be, you know, like we say, the line would be from the door all the way to downtown Cedar Rapids where our office is. Right. The third one that can be very important is when you take Medicare in what type of coverage you enroll in. I'm not going to get too far in the weeds on this. It's a really important decision. We do not specialize in Medicare, but in our office, we do have a gentleman who handles all of this for our clients. But there is a period that you're eligible to enroll right around your 65th birthday. But how you pick your Medicare and what type of Medicare plan you have or are going to take, whether you're taking traditional Medicare to a Medicare advantage, it all could make a gigantic difference later on. So I want people to be aware of what they're doing with Medicare. The fourth thing that you really need to pay attention to is how to pay for healthcare expenses. This could be one of the largest expenses for people in retirement between Medicare, you know, any healthcare. Remember, Medicare doesn't cover vision. It doesn't cover dental. It also doesn't cover nursing homes and assisted living and in-home healthcare which a large majority of our aging population is going to need. You start looking at home health care and assisted living, it could easily be $100,000 a year. So people should be thinking about how am I going to pay if I get to the point in life where I need help? And 
there's really four ways we talk about covering this or how to pay for these different expenses. And the first is you can do what the vast majority of everybody in the population does, and that's just ignore the problem. Just not deal with it. It's not really the mature way to do it, but it's a way to do it. Two, you can go into Title 19. Just basically spend on all your assets and you can go on a state paid for program. And for a lot of people, this is probably the option that makes sense for them. Um, unless you have some assets, and when I say some, more than most people probably think, this is the route you're gonna go for your extended care because you really can't afford to do the last two options, which option three is your self-insured. Meaning you add up all your income sources, your guaranteed income sources, add up the interest you're making on your investments and you see if you can afford to pay it. And if you can afford to pay it, then you're self-insured. If you can't afford to pay it, Option four is you buy insurance to cover that need. We call it the gap insurance. And premiums are expensive on long-term care. I mean, they're really, they priced out most people in the market. Yeah, um, it's, it seems like it's almost, unaffor- it's almost unaffordable in a lot of situations. I feel like mo- the most, most of the people who are now buying long-term care are buying it more for peace of mind than anything else. They want to have decisions and they don't want their family to make hard decisions as to whether or not they're going to get care, where they're going to get care. They just want them to say, we have insurance to pay for it and we're going to have some paid for it. Because think about this, in every family, I don't care who you are, has this dynamic. Nobody wants to see their loved one deteriorate to the point where they can't take care of themselves. But two, then you throw money into the equation. And let's say there's three siblings. I'm making this scenario up. There's three siblings. And one sibling's like, yeah, I'm willing to take care of mom so we don't have to spend the money. Because no one wants to spend mom's money to take care of them. And that's when the real problem starts. Because the one sibling shows, you know, they're doing all the work and the other two aren't doing it. And it, you just don't want that dynamic. So that's what I see long-term care providing for a lot of families now. It's just, hey, we don't have to decide who's going to take care of mom. They have insurance to do it, but those are also the families that typically have exponential resources to do it and probably don't even need the long-term care. It's literally a lifestyle for them. And the last thing I think is actually really important. I know I have this talk with my wife every day, where to live in retirement. From a, what, from just a tax perspective or cost of living or? I think both. Yeah. All three, tax, cost of living, and mental, you know, what mentally makes you feel good. You know, just because you're from somewhere and you grew up somewhere doesn't mean you have to live there forever. Like my wife, for her mental health at some point, she needs the sun in January. I, I was just going to say choosing know, to live in a in a wintertime <laughs> desert is probably not the best choice, but that's what we choose to do currently. We choose to do it every day, but you know, in retirement, you pro, you know, I won't say probably, but a lot of times you have the choice as to where to go. So, my uncle's retired. My aunt hasn't retired yet, but will in a few years and they've been in Cedar Rapids, they've been in Denver, they moved back to Cedar Rapids. They just moved to Phoenix. My uncle loves They're to staying. ride his bike. They're he goes, listen. There. He goes, and they're, they're fanatical workout people. Like this is what they love to do. My uncle used to bike like three or 400 miles a week in the mountains. Cause you can ride year round in Denver and that area is set up to ride a bike. Well, you know, in Cedar Rapids, none of the city's designed to ride a bike in. You're like riding down the side of a highway about getting clipped by the oncoming traffic. So 
they we have, decided we have bike lanes though, but it's just not. Yeah, but yeah. he decided for their mental health, they needed to be in a place, and that's not the conscious decision. Just they're feeling better about being in a place where they can ride their bike every day. He put a post out there on social media and said, you know, for the last twenty years, we've talked about being able to ride our bike to get our groceries and go to coffee and just all the living stuff we do. Like they love to bike ride. Well, they get to do it now. That's what he's most excited about. So where you live is actually a bigger decision than most people think, not just from the financial aspect. Like everybody thinks about the finances of it. Yeah. We'll go to a tax-free state of Florida and Texas. Yeah. They, their income tax might be zero, but guess what? They're getting you some other way. Their other tax, yeah. Their their other, other taxes, taxes you're not higher. paying attention to or don't know about. Like in Missouri, they have purple personal property tax. Like property taxes are fairly low, but the personal property you own on your residence is subject to property tax. So your cars, your boats, all that stuff is subject to personal property tax. So living in retirement and where you're going to live should be or is like one of the major decisions that's going to affect you. Well, and you, your aunt and uncle, if they're they ride their bikes a lot of places. They're probably not worried about the price of gas either. They're frugal and they're worried about the price of gas. That's probably why they want to ride their bikes. No, but that's a good, I mean, gas gets too high and you live somewhere you can ride your bike every day. You're good. They literally, they'll be so happy because they're able to ride their bike to and from everything they like to do. I mean, my uncle would never get in a car if he didn't have to, he would just ride his bike everywhere. Cause he just loves to bike. In fact, I want to say at like 50 took up competitive bike riding. Like he was competing <laughs> in biking events in Colorado, which is um, ultra competitive. In fact, do you remember Tyler Hamilton? I do not. Okay. Tyler Hamilton is the one who came out and released a lot of the information about Lance Armstrong. Oh, okay. he was on that yes. biking team. Yes. I've yeah. At one time, on TV. at one time, my uncle was taking, you know, that was my uncle's biking coach was Tyler Hamilton. That's how like into the biking yeah. scene he was. That, that's intense. You know, he got in, he fell and got injured and that was kind of the end of the competitive biking scene, but that that's how much he loves it. But with that said, when we talk with people about retirement, you know, money is a huge factor, but what you're going to do is probably even a bigger factor. I met with a friend right before I came here and he's at retirement age. He goes about four years ago, I was ready to retire, but he goes, I got to the edge of the cliff and I looked down and he's like, man, I'm not sure I got, got all my stuff in line. Cause he goes, I don't know what I'm going to do. He literally, he's like, I don't really have any hobbies. Like work has been all I've done for the last 35 years. So he delayed retirement. Cause he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And a lot of people enter retirement not knowing what they're going to do and what do they, what ends up happening back, back to, to work. There you go. And most of the time it's in something they really enjoy doing, but you got to have more than just the thought of money going into retirement. I have the talk with my parents. What are you guys going to do? I mean, the camp, well, yeah, you live in Iowa, so you get to camp like five months a year. What are you going to do the other seven months? Camp in a warmer state. I'm not sure they like to pull the camper that far, <laughs> but that is a good idea. Uh, with that said, I appreciate having you on the, the show again, Elias. If anybody wants help kind of navigating a financial plan or helping make some of these decisions like Social Security or whether I should do a Roth IRA or when I should, you know, sign up for Medicare, or how does living in a different place affect me? Go to btwellshow.com, hit click, click the button that says get started. 
and we'd be happy to help you guys out. With that said, great episode, Elias, and I want to thank everybody for listening. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.